Well, let me join with Tim and welcome everyone this morning. We have a good audience today. We have several that are visiting with us. We welcome you. Hope that you will come back on other occasions. I know some are traveling and have stopped in, and we are glad you've chosen our church family here at West Main. There may be others visiting the community, and we certainly welcome you. And if you're looking for a church home, we would love to uh, talk to you about this being your permanent church home and uh, casting your lot with us here at West Main. It's uh, good to see our college students back, and uh, hopefully you got a good long break and are here for a while and can enjoy a little time off, and it's certainly glad to see you in our number this morning. You know, I was, I was thinking, Russ, and I guess see, seeing you up here have to, to work the PowerPoint today, it's a little different deal, of how much goes into a worship service. And a lot of times it's the preacher, they say, oh, he worked up a sermon. Well, that's right. We spent, preachers spend time doing that. It just doesn't happen. But there's a lot of other people working behind the scenes. And I'm around here during the week and people come in and they prepare for classes. And classes are ready for the children, different people. And, and uh, you have people that clean the building and get other things ready. And Russ was up here several hours yesterday working on the uh, uh, AV system and things that have to do with the internet and stuff I don't even I can't even explain it I'm just uh, just all kinds of stuff and uh, just a lot that goes into this and uh, he and his team have been working improving the AV system and making it possible not only for us to have a good situation here but uh, people that may be at home sick or traveling or other places can have access to our worship service and so uh, that's just a really positive thing and I appreciate each one of you and not to leave out uh, uh, the song leaders and the time that they put in people get the powerpoint ready and here I go I've left someone out but I, I just know there's a lot that goes into it you know you even think about communion someone prepared that didn't they I was at a congregation one time where whoever was assigned forgot to do it and the trays were sitting on the table and they went to offer it and there was nothing in the trays. So if you think that's not a big deal, it is. It's a pretty big deal. So thank all of you that have a part in making worship service possible and for all that have come this morning that we might worship together and things come smoothly together. Well, regardless of how you feel about it, or your level of personal involvement as your family, we are just a week away from that time that we call Christmas. You can't escape it. It's a holiday. And if you got kids, yeah, I know you can't escape it. It's on people's minds. And so I thought I might as well preach about it. It is a festive time of year. I enjoy it. It's a time with lights and with music and holiday cheer and warmth and goodwill and the giving of gifts and it is a fun time of the year in a lot of ways and one of the things that people like this time of year is surprises don't we all like surprises that we get up that morning and we begin to pass out presents and so forth and and we get something that's unexpected unanticipated that we got something we didn't know we we're going to get we're going to get a surprise well i thought in that vein I would share with you some surprises this, this morning, and that's a surprise, there we go, six surprises about Christmas that I want to talk about this morning. Now, lest someone get concerned, this is a Bible lesson, and we're going to get pretty quick into some scripture here this morning, but I want us to think about some things that uh, maybe you haven't thought about for a while, 
And if some of this depends on how long you've been a Christian, or if you're a guest with us this morning, if you've been a Christian a long time, some of these may not be too surprising, though there may be one or two that is. But if you haven't been a Christian very long, or if you're a seeker that is looking, some of these might be very surprising to you. But regardless of that, I guarantee you that what we're going to talk about this morning is surprising to most people in the world, and especially the religious world. So, I have six surprises. Number one, the first surprise to some people would be the number of times that Christmas is found in the Bible. And so I went to my trusty Bible program in my computer, and what I found out is when you read the name Christ, or the title Christ, it's found 554 times in your Bibles, in the New Testament. Or Jesus, 980 times we read the name of Jesus. I mentioned a few of those in communion. I actually had 10 things that I said specifically about Jesus and our relationship to him. But I could have had a lot of others. And we'd still be doing communion service because there's 980 times Jesus is mentioned. And then we have the name Christian. In Acts 11 and verse 26, the disciples were called Christians, we have the plural there, in Antioch. And then we have the singular where Agrippa said to Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian, in Acts 26. And then Peter mentions the word Christian, or the name Christian. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. It's only three times, and that may be surprising to some people, that only three times do we find the name Christian mentioned. Well, how about Christmas? And so if you don't know the answer to that, would it be seven times? Would it be three times? Would it be maybe only one time? Or would it be no times? Well, if you've been a Christian very long, you may well know the answer to that. Zero times. The name or the word Christmas is not found in the Bible. And as much as you hear people talking about it, and I hear people talk about the Christmas story. And so you'd want to maybe type in your Bible program, the Christmas story. Well, nothing's going to come up on a Bible program because Christmas is not found in the Bible. So that may be surprising to some people that look at Christmas as certainly a major religious celebration that the word is never found in the Bible. A second surprise to some people is really the actual meaning of the word Christmas. Now, we see Christ in the word, but also we have the word mass. And it is interesting about this that the word mass is never found in the Bible either. And I hear people sometimes talking about going to mass or attending Mass, or, or participating in Mass, or you hear the words saying the Mass. Now, you may not be familiar with some of those expressions, but I have friends that have talked about that. But the word Mass is not found in the Bible either. But in the Catechism of Christian Doctrine, on page 4, we read this. The word is derived from the Catholic Mass said each year in honor of Christ's birthday. The Mass is supposed to be the doctrine of the unbloody sacrifice of the body and the blood of Jesus. 
Now, I, I'm sure to many of us, that's, in fact, I see some people kind of frowning, kind of furring their eyebrows like, what does that mean? Well, let me try to explain this to you the best I can. And if I have someone here that maybe has more knowledge, I'd be glad, to, if I misrepresent anything, to be corrected on this. But here's my understanding about that doctrine. The communion in Catholic circles is referred to as the Eucharist. And so they talk about, now that's a word that's not used in the Bible either, by the way. Uh, we have communion and we have Lord's Supper, not Eucharist. But they refer to it as the Eucharist. And there is a teaching in Catholicism about the Eucharist that when the priest blesses it, and if you've ever attended a Catholic service or Mass, and when they come to what we call the communion service, the bread and the fruit of the vine, that they call the Eucharist, and the priest blesses it, then it becomes, they teach, the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so the idea is, and this is a doctrine that is called in Catholic circles, transubstantiation. Now that is a long word that just simply means that when the priest blesses this, that it becomes the unbloody sacrifice, as they call it, of Jesus. That it literally becomes the idea of the blood. It is the unbloody sacrifice. And so what that means, it is every, every time they offer Eucharist, and every time the priest blesses it, and the elements go through transubstantiation, you have the sacrifice offered again. The unbloody sacrifice, they call it. Now, other than the fact that none of that is mentioned in the Bible, it occurred to me in studying this one time that you have a direct contradiction of what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 9 and verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And to those that eagerly await for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And so you don't have a continual offering uh, once a bloody sacrifice and then an unbloody sacrifice, Christ was once offered. And so the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross happened one time for all time and for all people. Well, there's a third surprise, and this maybe really surprised a lot of people, that the date of Christ's birth is unknown. Here's what the Bible tells us about the birth of Christ. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So we know that Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the days of Herod the king. Now we can go back to secular history and we can get a general idea of when Christ was born. However, you know there is a discrepancy in the calendar and so because of that actually the way it's been dated he may have been born about three or four bc which doesn't make a lot of sense because when you think of bc you think before the birth of christ but based on the calendar that might actually be the case but we have a general idea because he was born in the days of herod the king luke says in luke chapter 2 and verse 8 now they were in the same country shepherds living out in the field and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, this is an important verse that's going to give us a little insight possibly here in a minute. But as we think about these statements about the birth of Christ, well, we don't know even what year it was. 
The Bible doesn't tell us what month it was. The Bible doesn't tell us what day it was. And so I consulted some people that are highly respected among various religious groups, not just commentaries that I would read, but different denominational groups would read. And one is the highly respected Presbyterian commentator, Albert Barnes. And here's what Albert Barnes says in his commentary on Luke, Luke 2. He said, it is a fact that the Jews sent out their flocks during the summer months and took them up again in the latter part of October or the first part of November when cold weather is commenced. It is probable from this that our Savior was born before the 25th of December, of before what we call Christmas. At that time, it is cold, and especially in the high and mountainous regions around Bethlehem. And so Barnes, and I think is correct about this, I haven't been to Palestine, but those that have tell me that this is a fact, and that if you go there, the shepherds are not out in the fields the 25th of December. In fact, not in the month of December, but then they have brought their flocks in because it is cold then. And so when the Bible tells us the shepherds were out in the field and they were taking care of their flocks, not very likely this was any time in the month of December. He goes on to say the exact time of his birth is unknown. And he says, Barnes says, there is no way to ascertain it, nor is it of consequence to know the time. And then Barnes says, if it were God, it would preserve the record of it, Matters of moment are clearly revealed. Those of which he regards of no importance are concealed. Well, I think that's right. That God has given us what we need to know. Peter said that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so what I need to know for salvation, to be right with God, to have my sins washed away, to be able to serve God, to worship God, all that has been revealed. And Barnes is right about that, that God has preserved, and we have the record preserved for us, of those that are matters of consequence that we need to know. There are a lot of matters that we would like to know. There are a lot of things that we're curious about that we would like to know that are not revealed. And since they're not revealed, apparently the Lord thinks that those are not important for us to know. And one of those would have to do with the birth of Christ. The Encyclopedia Britannica says Christmas was not among the earliest festivals of the church. And before the 5th century, there was no general consensus of opinion as to when it should come in the calendar. Whether January 6th, March 25th, or December 25th. In reality, if you do a lot of research on this... It would take me several slides to list all of the different dates through the years that different people have suggested might be the day on which Christ is born. Almost, not quite, but almost every day of the year someone has decided that must be the birthday of Christ. And so it may be surprising to a lot of people that the date of Jesus' birth is unknown. Here's surprise number four. Three wise men did not come to the stable where Jesus was born. Now, that may even surprise some of you here this morning because we have been so uh, programmed to think that 
by the religious world and even the secular world. And oftentimes you'll see manger scenes and there are the three wise men. I've gotten Christmas cards from people with the pictures of the three wise men that have come to worship Jesus. But a little Bible investigation along with the common sense will tell us that that was actually not possible. In Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 1, it says that these men came from the east. Now remember, they were coming across the plains and they weren't on a plane. Okay? They were riding a camel or whatever it was, some mode of transportation. They're taking a long time. They were coming from the far east. And so it would have taken a good while to have gotten there. The Bible says they came from the east. Furthermore, this text says in Matthew chapter 2 that when they came to Jesus, it says that they came into the house. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a stable in a manger. But he didn't stay there. You remember why he was born in the manger? Because they had gone for taxation when they came to Bethlehem there was no room at the end. There was no place for Jesus to, to, for Mary to deliver Jesus. And so they went to this stable and he was born in a manger. But they didn't stay there. And by the time the wise men would have traveled all the way from the east, they weren't still in the manger. They were in a house. And so that means that they weren't there at the birth. It occurred sometime later. Now, furthermore, down in Matthew 2, as you're reading this, down through about verse 11 or so, what you will see there is the, after the wise men left that Joseph was warned in a dream about Herod's plot. You remember Herod wanted to know about the birth of Messiah. And he was, of course, he understood, like some of the Jews misunderstood it, that it was going to be, he was going to be an earthly king. And he was concerned about some rival to his throne. And so he decided to execute all of the babies who were under two years old to make sure he got rid of this baby that might be born, that might be his rival. Well, Joseph was warned about that in a dream and about this plot. And it says that that night after the wise men left, they fled for Egypt. You say, well, how does that prove anything? Well, stay with me. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 22, in talking about the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, it talks about Mary's days of purification. And when Mary's days of purification were over, then Jesus was brought to the temple to be presented to the temple. Now, you say, well, what do we, what do we know about that? Well, it's according to the law of Moses. Now, if you look back to Leviticus, in chapter 12, in the first four verses, it talks about a child being born and how for seven days the mother is unclean, the child, the male child is circumcised on the eighth day, and then for another, it's another 33 days before the mother can go into the sanctuary and be considered clean. And so you have a total of 40 days, at least 40 days, before Mary could have gone to the temple and have Jesus presented. Well, think about this a second. If that's the case, then they had already been to the temple. The days of purification were over when they left and fled to Egypt. Right? That has to be the chronology. And so it must mean it was at least 40 days after his birth before the wise men showed up. And yet it is a very popular misconception to think that the wise men were there. Now, 
I might add parenthetically, the Bible doesn't say three either. It just says wise men. Uh, now, it says they brought gifts of myrrh and frankincense and gold. And some have concluded, well, there was three gifts, but there could have been several gifts of gold or several gifts of myrrh or several gifts of frankincense. So they could have gone together on this. I don't know if there was two or ten. Bible doesn't say. And it really doesn't make any difference except for the fact that we have gotten this notion that here are three wise men that shows up at the birth of Christ. And chronologically from the Bible, it would be impossible for that to have happened. So I'm sure that is a big surprise to a lot of people. Surprise number five is that Christmas is actually of Roman Catholic origin. We've already seen the word is not in the Bible at all. We don't know when Christ was born. And once again, I consulted some different commentators that might have some insight into this. And Adam Clark is a commentator that's well-respected among religious folks, among people of different uh, theological views. He was, in fact, one of the greatest commentators among the Methodists. He was a Methodist commentator. And here's what Adam Clark had to say. He said, The time in which Christ was born has been considered a subject of great importance among Christians. However, the matter has been considered of him, considered of no moment by him who inspired the evangelist, as not one hint is dropped on the subject by which it may be possible even to guess nearly to the time. Now, you understand Clark wrote a long time ago, so I'll begin to read the way he penned this. Okay? He said, learned and pious men have trifled egregiously on this subject, making that of importance which Holy Spirit by His silence has plainly informed them that there is none. Fabricus gives a catalog of no less than 136 different opinions concerning the year of Christ's birth, and as to His birthday, that has been placed, he says, by Christian sects and learned men in every month in the year. But the Latin church, supreme in power and infallible in judgment, let me just stop here and say that I believe that Clark is being facetious when he writes that. I don't believe I'm reading something into that. Placed it on the 25th of December, the very day on which the ancient Romans celebrated the feast of their goddess Brutus, Pope Julius I was the first person who made this alteration. Now, I won't take the time because I would be repeating very similar kind of thing, but I can quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia as well as other sources that tell us this. In fact, they're not ashamed of this, and so unless someone thinks that I'm trying to rag on them because of this, I mean, they will admit this freely, I think. It's on all of their literature and their encyclopedias and dictionaries. So that is the origin of Christmas. It is a Roman Catholic origin, which leads us to surprise number five, that we are not commanded to observe the birthday of Christ as a religious holiday or holy day. And that might surprise a lot of people. There is no command for that. We know that we're told in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And the word oracle has to do with that which God has verbally brought forth. Now, God verbally brought forth His Word to the patriarchs and spoke directly to them. 
He verbally brought forth his word to Moses, and Moses wrote it down. And we have the statutes and ordinances as well as Ten Commandments. But God also verbally brought forth his word as he inspired the apostles to pen it. All Scripture, Paul said, is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3, 16. That means God breathed. It is the oracle of God. And so as we think about things of a religious nature, Paul says that we are to test all things and we are to hold fast to that which is good. One version says to prove all things. And so when it comes to matters of a religious nature that have spiritual significance, I need to test those things. I need to prove those things. I need to make sure that those things fit with the teaching of God, the oracles of God, the, that which has been inspired by God. And Colossians 3 and verse 17, Paul said, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name. And the word name means authority. By the authority or name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. I didn't put this verse on the PowerPoint, but we could add Matthew 16 and verse 19, where Jesus told, when He told Peter upon this rock, and the rock, of course, was the confession of faith that Jesus was the Son of God, He said, I will build my church. In the next verse tells Peter that He's going to give him the keys to allow people to enter into the kingdom. And then He says, that whatever has been bound in heaven, you shall bind on earth, and whatever has been loosed in heaven, you shall loose on earth. In other words, what God has bound, He's bound it in heaven. He's bound it the way He wanted. And whatever has been loosed, and we've been given the liberty to do, then God is the one that has done that. And so we need to take that into account anytime we consider some religious practice. What we do read, though, about religious practices is this. Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took the cup and He took the bread. And when He, he instituted that and commanded them to do it in remembrance of Him. In Matthew 26, 28, He said, For this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so maybe you're a guest this morning. I suppose it's possible that someone had never been to a communion service. I have had people through the years ask me why we do this. And the answer is simple. Jesus instituted it. Jesus commanded it. When you look in the accounts in Matthew and in Mark and Luke, what you read here is something that Jesus said ought to be done. It ought to be done in remembrance of Him. And so then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the Apostle Paul then repeats this, and he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so we have an authorization here to come together to eat the unleavened bread and to drink the fruit of the vine, and we do it in memory of Jesus. We reflect upon His life and His death and the fact that He is coming again for us. And we do that on the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20. And in verse 7, the disciples came together on the first day of the week. That's when the disciples came together to break bread. On the first day of the week. And so that's why we come today. And we do it every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day we have this celebration. Every Lord's Day we take time to reflect on this as the early disciples did. And so we're not commanded to observe the birthday of Christ. 
as a religious holiday or a holy day or to set it apart in some kind of a special way about Christmas. Now, <clears throat> those are some things that I think would surprise an awful lot of folks. And I think this morning that we have been able to share where, we, where possible some biblical uh, authority verses that would tell us this. Unfortunately, there were some things we talked about this morning that are not in the Bible, so there's no Bible verses for them. That we, we, can't, we can't find them. Now, I want to close. I didn't put these down, but maybe a couple other surprises that might... I can see a lot of you are not too surprised at some of this. What I'm about to say may or may not surprise you. I don't know. I celebrate Christmas. Hmm. Not as the birthday of Christ, but it's a national holiday. It's a national holiday. If you work a job, you're probably off, unless you're a physician that's on call or a fireman or something like that, but uh, you're probably off work. And if you have to work, you'll probably get paid double time. So you, whether you want to or not, in a sense, you celebrate it. Through the years, I have known of brethren that and I respect this, by the way. They say, I want nothing to do with Christmas. We don't have a tree. We don't decorate. We don't exchange gifts. It's just another day. And you know what? If you feel that way, I respect that. That's fine. But you know, I think I have the right on December 25th or July 25th or any other day I want to decorate my house and to have a big meal and uh, exchange gifts. I don't think I'm violating any Bible teaching when I do that. And so... We need to respect each other's private views about some of those things when it comes to things of this nature. Here's another thing that may surprise you. Through the years, as I have thought about this, and I usually, if I'm going to preach a sermon on this, try to preach it a week or two before the holiday. Next Sunday, there will may be any number of people that decide to visit here because they think they ought to come to church because the next day is Christmas. And, if, and I will tell you this, that if Christmas falls on a Sunday, you will definitely have some guests. Almost anywhere I've ever been, you have some guests. You know how I treat that? I'm glad they came. And let me tell you something else that, that I'm, I'm, I rejoice in. I rejoice that people are talking about Jesus. Isn't it interesting that for 11 months a year we can't talk about Jesus and culture? Then all of a sudden, even the news media, it's okay to talk about Jesus for a, a, a month or a few weeks or a few days. Now granted, a lot of the things that are said, or at least some of the things that are said, are maybe inaccurate that we've talked about this morning. But I always think this, maybe someone will begin to think about their spiritual life. Maybe in thinking about Jesus, that someone will begin to investigate what the Bible says and want to come to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so I'm not angry about it or upset about it that people talk about Jesus. In fact, it kind of bothers me a little bit that people don't even want to say the word Christmas anymore. Now that's just me, okay? That may surprise you. But I'm glad anytime Jesus is talked about and maybe we can point people to him. Let me tell you something else. Any opportunity that I have 
whether it's at Christmas time or what is called by the religious world Easter or any other holiday or supposed holy day, I'm happy to talk about Jesus. I'm not going to shy away from it, whether it's in the pulpit or privately or whenever it is. I'm not ashamed to call Jesus my Lord. And I hope you're not either. So I just suggest let's not shy away from it this time of year. And then one more thing, the lesson is yours. You know, when people come, and I can tell sometimes they're a little, they're surprised that we just have a regular worship service. And maybe they ask about it. You know, I make it a point to treat them with great kindness and respect and not to try to beat them over the head with these six things I've talked about this morning. And if they got a question, well, let's get together and talk about it and discuss what the Bible says and not speak to people in a pejorative kind of a way that would offend them and drive them away from Jesus. Because I don't want to do that. I want them to come to Jesus and understand the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's true 24-7, 365. This morning as we sing a song that Stu has selected of encouragement and invitation, would you come to Jesus? Would you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? Would you be baptized for the mission of your sins? To allow the blood of Jesus to wash them away and to be right with Him. It's to Him we must surrender and give our all. And we invite you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.